Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, we have some exciting news. On Saturday, September 19th, we announced the winners of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This year, we held our gala through the magic of the internet, and you can still enjoy that through our website. There is a gala presentation video that you can watch forever and always and celebrate our finalists and winners there. We also held a celebration on Zoom, where we were able to cheer on the winners and finalists as we watched the video live. It was a great night, and it was so fun to be able to be with others in the community, even if it was online, to celebrate together. The work by all the amazing authors and illustrators who are both finalists and winners for this year's prizes are spectacular. And I can only imagine the hard work our jurors had to do to select the winners. I hope that all of you go out and buy or borrow from your local library all the books by the finalists and winners. Read them yourself, share them with others, and talk about them because they are all beautiful and deserve so much love. Now, one of those beautiful books is Aria by Nazanin Hozar. Aria is a finalist for the 2020 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. As you'll hear in this conversation with Nazanin, it took her nearly 10 years to write this novel. And once you start reading, you'll see why. This amazing book is told through the lives and stories of several characters whose lives intersect and circle a young woman named Aria. While Aria is the story of a young woman, it's also the story of a place, Iran, in the years and months and days surrounding the Iranian Revolution. In my conversation with Nazanin, we talk about the characters that bring the story to life and the way she decided to tell a story that happens around an important moment in history, but is really about people and relationships. Nazanin starts our conversation with a reading from Aria. Well, um, this section that I'm going to read from is the one of the main characters. He he's a driver in the Iranian army, and he he's actually rescued the um, the t- the titular character Arya. And this is many years later um, in his in their lives. He's he's rescued her from when she was an infant, abandoned, sort of on the side of the street, and. Um, now, many years later, he is driving her and her best friend to the Caspian Sea in the north of Iran. And he's sort of telling them a bit um, about the things that sort of lay out onto the horizon, onto the land. And um, he's also sort of thinking to himself about his own life, what's going on in his life, what's going on with his own wife. And... Um, he's noticing some strange things that he's not noticed before about Arya, the daughter that he's adopted, the daughter that he's rescued. And he's becoming more aware of these things uh, that are sort of percolating in his mind about her. And that also the reader is starting to discover about her as we're reading through and discovering her through the story. And this is about three quarters into the novel. We're sort of understanding this about her character. 
So um, this is the drive up to the Caspian Sea. And the, um, the girls are also sort of talking to each other as well as um, understanding themselves as well as burgeoning teenagers. And he's also thinking about the main character, Behruz. He's also thinking about uh, a young man that he sort of has a sort of um, semi-gay uh, relationship with that he's had to keep secret for many years in his life. As Behruz drove, he thought of Ramin, how the authorities had allowed him to come back from Shiraz months ago, but refused to let him have visitors. Behruz thought guiltily of Zahra too, hoping she wouldn't be angry when she learned he'd left without saying a word. But she would understand he was with Arya. After all, Zahra knew everything about him. In the distance, he could make out ant-sized military buildings. Beneath his tires was dirt and mud from the rough road that took them away from Tehran and into the valleys and trees. Soon they would pass new soldiers heading back from their morning march. Beside him, Arya was planning out the day for Mitra, explaining how there would be introductions to the soldiers, describing the different ranks and who did what and who came from where, elaborating on how life was lived up here, and even suggesting a trip to the pomegranate garden at the other end of the hill. Behruz listened to the conversation, intrigued as Arya asked Mitra why she was always angry with her. He noted how the girls argued over who could have the closest seat to the window on the way north, and how they fought over the Armenian boy, Hamlet. Behruz glanced at Arya. Through the years, he had noticed changes in her and certain complexities. Now he saw that she had somehow acquired the ability to be two things in one, two Arias. One was smiling graciously at the view of her beloved pomegranate field. The other was angry with her friend. Her face was like the Mona Lisa's, full of elegant kindness and calculated contempt, both in a single glance. Years ago, Ramin had read to him about the Mona Lisa, saying the reason everyone cherished the painting so much was because of the duplicitous nature it depicted, containing within the curve of a half-smile love and hatred, good and bad. Now he was beginning to see all of life like this, too. I want you to look at something, he said to the girls, to the west. The girls gazed at the horizon where he was pointing. Do you see the valleys before the mountain rises again? Yes, Mitra said. Are you looking, Arya? Look beyond the albors and beyond those valleys, girls, to the west. Look beyond what your eyes can show you. Far beyond, and even beyond that, lies the Alamut. I can't see beyond what my eyes show me, Mitra said. Imagine, try to imagine, said Arya. Behus continued. At one time, there were fortresses throughout that land. They call it the Valley of the Assassins. Assassins, Mitra said. Yes, named after the Hashashins. They were followers of Hassan Sabah, an ancient leader of Persia. I'd like to take you there. You too, Mitra. There are beautiful things to see. Do they kill people there? Mitra asked. Used to, Behruz replied. Assassinate them? 
Behuz nodded. Assassinated, executed. It was a valley of fear. Wherever there is immense, there is immense beauty, there is immense fear of losing that beauty, perhaps. Did they kill out of fear? Mitra asked. Is there ever another reason? Behu said. The valley is endless, like a sea of hardened sand. If you journey through it long enough, you begin to think all the world is like it. You begin to think the earth is red. But just when you're certain of your space, certain that nothing around you will change, suddenly everything moves and shifts. The valleys fall into rivers. They stream down from the well of the Caspian like flattened waterfalls. The more you walk, the farther north you go, the more you realize that nothing you were certain of is true. A world that seems fixed one way suddenly becomes another. The Red Valley turns green, mountains grow, cloaked with trees more beautiful than you can imagine. You reach the slopes of Mazandaran, from the tip of which you can see the Caspian Sea, way out there, and you can taste the salt of its water as the clouds carry it to you. But it's really a lake, not a sea, Arya said. Yes, it's really a lake, not a sea at all. But it can make you believe it's a sea, and its water is salty. That is the Caspian, the great deceiver. It is two things at once. That's where its beauty lies. There we go. Thank you. It's a it's a interesting uh reading to start with because even that last line kind of hints to so much in the book like these characters i mean and just as people are are so much more than they seem and i wondered if you could talk about the characters to start us off because the book is named for aria but really it's this beautiful web of relationships and friendships that bring the story together so how did these characters come to you and how did you keep them all straight in your mind (laughs) (laughs) you know it's really funny because um, a lot of people suggested to me to have you know one of these big boards and have sort of postcards and color coat characters to have to have some kind of web so I could keep track of all of them but I I just kept them in my head sort of I managed over the years to have them all in there somehow um yeah, it is. I See, what I kind of wanted was to have this one central character, Arya, to somehow be connected to all of these people and for all of these people to be brought together because of her. Um, kind of like a, a kind of causality that one thing that one of them did would affect everybody else. And if you reach back into the story one thing you'll notice is if you read it carefully enough, sometimes you might have to read it more than once to notice this, that one thing that one does will affect what another, something that happens to another one. And the ultimate um, result, what we get to ultimately by the end of the book, which I of course won't spoil, really is a result of something that all of them have done. So, everyone has a hand in what happens at the very end of the novel. And it was very important for me to have all of these characters be interconnected. And they sort of arose, you know, I started with one, one character and then she had to have a friend. You know, I'm talking about the first character I started with, which is Mary, which is the pregnant woman at the very beginning of the book. 
and she had to have a friend and that friend had to have a husband and then of course there's the baby who then becomes our main character Arya and then she's discovered by this man and then who does this man have in his life well he has this person this person this person and then you know what other characters do they interact with so it just starts it becomes this web of people and at, at some point I had to say okay enough you know I can't, I can't keep going because <laughs> we could go on forever here you know but uh, I had to keep it very contained but there are about 10 principal characters that are in sort of somehow managing to interact with each other um, sometimes without even knowing it without even realizing that they are interacting with each other in this novel yeah I think one of the relationships um, that I ended up spending a lot of time thinking about and I was still I was thinking about it today as I was uh, going over my questions for you was the one between Cameron and Aria and that's such an interesting friendship because you can see how like if a few things in Arya's life had ended up differently, she probably would have been on a very similar path to him. But, you know, yeah. those small choices, those small things change and they end up on very different paths. And it's interesting to see how those play out in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's exactly that. It's these, these cause and effect, these in tiny moments that change, change the course of what happens to one's life. And Strangely enough, however, um, these two characters in a, in a roundabout way end up kind of meeting or tangentially meeting near the end of the book, right? So they come back together in a strange way, just, you know, in diff- through different paths, through different, through different journeys. And that's the thing with life is you never know one tiny step this way left right forward backward can change the course of life can change which paths we take which way we go and i'm very interested in things like that um had had you not done this maybe you would have ended up in a different in a different field you know and i mean that with regards to every human being um that's, I find that very fascinating. I'm very fascinated by, by exploring, even in my next novel that I'm writing, I, I play with that a lot. These sort of uh, serendipitous moments that sort of take place. And we, we make somehow, because Arya is supposed to be our sort of hero or heroine, we might think it's serendipitous for her, but in many ways, things are serendipitous for Kamran as well. But they take them down a path that maybe we as readers are might not be necessarily very fond of, but some, some other people might be very fond of what happens to him. Who knows? Depends on the reader. Mm -hmm. I think too, by showing those different um, choices and paths that people take, you were able to um, show the complexity too of the Iranian revolution, which this is all kind of circling around. Um, why did you decide to kind of place that at the center? But at the same time, you don't, you don't talk about it as the revolution. You just kind of talk about the people as they interact with it. Yeah. They're, they're always dancing around it. And I, and I was very um, adamant that, you know, the, the book has sort of been marketed as something about the Iranian revolution. But when you actually read the book, it's really not. 
not, especially until the end of the book, you sort of touch on it somewhat. We have, because we kind of have to, because it culminates into something that deals with it. But, um, you know, I didn't want politics to overtake this book. This really ultimately is about circumstances of people who are weighed down by politics and weighed down by um, the, the um, political forces and world forces that are beyond their control, that control their lives. But uh, I didn't want this book to be sort of a po political lecture about, uh, you know, which path people should take or what's right or what's wrong. I very want, much wanted readers to judge for themselves, to make their own choices, decisions about whether these characters are making the right decisions or not. And to, to connect with these people based on their human decisions, not their political decisions or the, the political things are, are, that are happening to them, rather the human, human circumstances. Because I think you can take what's going on in this novel to these people and, you know, drop that into any kind of society and experience that as well. I mean, I, I think you could, you could do that in Canada. This very much, you know, I, I even know of a very similar life story to someone who experienced this in, uh, in Switzerland, <laughs> you know, so you could, you could very much have very similar trajectories in various countries. It doesn't just have to be in Iran. Yes. Then there is this kind of revolution that, culminates that sort of makes things a bit um, more complex for them but the majority of the novel is about human interactions and how there's misunderstandings there's there are um, human sort of betrayals and hurt and feelings of guilt and having wanted to have done one thing but through societal pressures been forced to do other other things and i think you can find that anywhere in any society and it's universal themes more than anything yeah and i think it gives like an a more maybe well-rounded perspective of what happens as you said if you put any kind of um revolution or political crisis or anything at the center there's all these people's lives who are happening still have to happen around it exactly. and um and that's what i think was really interesting about about arias because you've got all these families who are reacting to the political climate and having to go about their lives still in very different ways right and uh i think that makes you think more deeply about these these political situations that happen like the people yeah. that are still have to live life in that climate right and they have to live life even after after it's all over so the story kind of doesn't stop at the revolution it, it proceeds afterwards until you know after the regime changes and certain certain changes are implemented into society well these people have to go on and they have to keep living and that you know that doesn't change their their human life, their their more regular everyday hu humanity that has to take place between them. And uh, so I think that's very key, I think, to focus on that rather than to focus on the politics, to focus on the human-to-human -human interaction rather than the political to the political. Because no one wants to be lectured at. I mean, 
this is not a textbook it's a it's a novel yeah <laughs> you know ultimately yeah you know I thought it was interesting that a lot of, well, there's men, like we hear Beirut in, in your reading and Kamran, there's men in the story, but a lot of the story is told through women's eyes and women's experiences too, Arya and Mana and all these women who she come, Mitra. Um, why was that an a important, important point of view for you to focus on um, for this book? I think it it sort of happened naturally more because I was very keen on exploring the relationship between mothers and children. Um, and the child in particular, in this case, happened to be a, a daughter, happened to be Aria. But I really wanted to explore what happens when um, the relationship between a mother is sort of a fractured and then multiplied by two or three so there's not just one fractured mother daughter or mother child relationship but two and then three so in this case she has three mothers and all three of them cannot connect to her all three of them have their own way of being able to unmother so to not mother her so they're unmothering her and um, I was very interested in exploring what happens to a human being when they don't have a stable mother in their lives what happens where where do they end up being um uh what drives them what and and the the reason for that is because i'm thinking of iran as sort of the motherland so i'm drawing a parallel between the motherland of Iran as sort of the nurturing mother figure to the people, to the Iranian people and the, the, the mothers that Ari experiences and herself as a parallel to the Iranian people. In fact, the Arya itself means Iranian people. The word Arya means Iranian people. So I'm sort of drawing a sort of parallel line between Arya what happens to Arya as a person and what happens to the Iranian people as a society when they don't have the stable life, they don't have a sta stable parent, parental guide in that's in this case, a country that is stable for them. So in this case, Arya doesn't have a mother that is stable, a stabilizing force and she keeps trying or it, it keeps being tried for her with the first one, the second one, the third one. And she never gets there. So I'm playing with that. I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of playing and experimenting in this novel. It, it seems like a very straightforward narrative, but in fact, there's a lot of experimentation going on, at least in my head. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in terms of the structure, it is like that a lot because it does have, you know, it has that kind of straight ahead chronological structure, but at the same right. time, it loops back on itself over and over again, too, right. because you, we get snippets of who some of these people are, and maybe we start to form opinions about them, and then you give us a little bit to explain, and it's kind of this interesting wave-like pattern where you're like falling back on, on the story a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's looping around itself a lot, the story. Yeah, it's relying on itself to understand itself. Which, were you thinking about, because I, I often think about structure as a writer and in talking to other writers, um, because we often follow that, we always hear about this, the traditional, uh, like, hero's journey plot. But yeah. the one that you introduced with this, this kind of cyclical pattern 
seems more natural and, and like a more human experience because none of our lives move straight forward. Yeah, um, exactly. We're always kind of repeating mistakes and so on. Um, yeah. Was that something you were thinking about as you were writing the story? Yes, because it was very much in my head because I was fo really focusing on this idea of cause and effect. And so if you, if you go through with this cause and effect quite a bit, you end up ending it up in a loop quite a bit <laughs> yeah. because, because that's what it is. You know, something causes and there's an effect and in the effect, there's another cause of something and that affects that causes, causes that, that brings about another effect. And within inside that effect, there's another cause. And there's the idea of like causality, which, uh, I'm having a harder time understanding now. I was studying it a bit more before, but it's the idea of, it's a kind of a scientific idea of, of one thing, one small thing in any environment can have uh, an effect on that environment, even, even if it has absolutely no connection. It, it's seemingly no connection to anything else, but just by existing within that environment, it's, will have repercussions in that in, in that environment but simply by simply being being within its atmosphere um and so by simply aria by simply existing within the atmosphere of that neighborhood or within the atmosphere that surrounds these people it's going she's going to have an effect on all of these people and vice versa them and so i was so that that concept of everything looping back on itself I was very much consciously thinking about these things as I was writing the novel. Yeah. You also play with empathy a lot in the novel too, where, um, you know, with like Zara, we, she is a very complicated character who at first I did not like at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the more you, you more, you kind of tease out this information to kind of make us think more deeply about, um, you know, who people are because of their past and, yeah. uh, and, and just like that kind of thoughts about who these people are, the mothers in particular, yeah. um, why they mother the way they do. And we're often very judgmental of mothers. So it was an interesting thing to be thinking of as, as we're learning about these characters. Yeah, it, that was, again, very much on my top priority of playing with empathy um, so I was very hopeful that by, by the end of the novel, people who disliked Zara would have a hard time disliking her, that even if they still disliked her, they would have a hard time about it. They would, it would, it would be difficult for them to dislike her because of what you learn, you find out about her. Same thing with Kamran, because he's obviously a boy that you start liking at the beginning of the novel. You like him quite a bit, but by the end of the novel, maybe you're not so sure about how you feel about him, but I, I'm hoping that that's difficult to that those emotions about him are very difficult. I'm hopeful that readers quite don't know what to think about him. Um, if I can achieve that in the novel to have people question their, their feelings about characters that normally you would think, well, it's cut and dry. I dislike this person. This is the bad person. But if I can make you question that a little bit, um, then, then that that's a goal that I've achieved a little bit because I was very mu that was very much at the top of my list as well. It, it was interesting too because with Arya as a character, like I felt very defensive of her, like seeing how other people reacted to her. Um, 
you wanted you wanted to stand up for her and be like, well, she's you know her life has not been easy. These are all the situations that make her how how she is. But yeah. then it it kind of tricks you because you want to you have to kind of think about the other characters in that way too as you're reading it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because if you're going to get give that to her, you're going to give that excuse for her. Give that sort of give her that um, benefit of, of of doubt. You're going to have to give it to to everybody else. Exactly. You know? But it's easier to do it for her because she's such a she's she's got such fight and and might and she she's the one that you're rooting for. But then it becomes a bit trickier when you you're moving to the characters who are a bit more questionable on the sidelines. Yeah. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, I, I heard it took you nine to 10 years to write this book. Yeah. What was that, what was that journey like for you? Um, how did you keep motivated and persevere with it? Cause I'm, I'm sure it was not easy for 10 years to wrestle with this book. Yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, it took about five, it took about um, five or six years to get a proper first draft done. Um. And then it took another with once I got a publishing deal, it took another um, about three or four years to go through the editing process with the publisher. So that, that added up to about nine years altogether. (laughs) Um, It was very, very difficult. The difficult, the difficulty really more than anything wasn't looking in me looking for inspiration. It was that, that I was working three jobs, sometimes four I was working 80 hours a week. There were times where I was working 100 hours a week. I was doing a degree at the same time, doing a master's at the same time, doing a bachelor's. I was doing bachelor of education at the same time and working 80 hours a week. And then I'd come home, I'd get home at you know 11 o'clock midnight and write for a couple hours and then wake up early morning and write again for another couple hours you know, exhausted. Any time I could find, I would write a little bit. So it was just writing through exhaustion all the time. And uh, that's where it was very, very difficult to try to eke out time and keep motivated in thinking, well, will anyone ever want to even publish this? Like I'm, I'm exhausting myself and doing all this work, you know, just going through all this torture and will anyone in the end want to even publish this? The unknown, the uncertainty of it. So that's that. That was just having some faith and toughing it out was what was what was very difficult. And yeah, I just persevered, I guess. And how? I mean, the response has been amazing to the book. And so, yeah. how is how has that been for you? To I mean, you toil away with it for ten years, and it, what's it been like to see you know Margaret Atwood, um, you know talking about it and John Irving and all these, you know, it was interesting as I was reading it, it really reminded me, I could see parallels with how John Irving tells story and he's one of my favorite storytellers. So it was nice to see him uh, say such kind things about it. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, what can I say? I mean, you, you have no words when people like that end up supporting your novel. I mean, John Irving, first of all, Margaret was has been so supportive and amazing, and is truly a wonderful human being. Um, and John Irving has also been exceptionally kind. And you know, we started emailing quite a bit back and forth because he wanted to 
do an interview with me at the Toronto Writers Festival. Um, and just to support the, support the book, he wanted it to launch out there really big and he offered that interview. And what I, I have, I have no words. I mean, because of, because of people like this, um, who themselves are so renowned to, to throw their support behind something I've, I've worked so hard for. Um, I'm just eternally grateful to them. I, I have, you know, nothing, nothing I could ever say will be enough to, to be able to thank them enough for what they've done for me. I can only, and I've told both of them this, I can only just pay it forward, you know, to some other up and coming writer, um, in the future to, to help that person out with, with their novel, with their work. Um, I'm just eternally grateful and just so very lucky that they, they've been such willing to support me so much. Just very lucky. Thanks so much to Nazanin for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our lovely listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website. You'll find our gala video there, along with information about all of this year's winners and finalists. And our website is bcyukonbookprizes.com. If you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Riding the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Sonnet Labay, author of Shakespeare's Sonnets, which is a finalist for the Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.